Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Lamontash. During this episode, we will be talking about critical thinking. Critical thinking is one of those most wanted, highly sought soft skills that appear in different variations in a lot of job postings, academic program and course outcomes. It also is a skill which has a very prominent place in recent discussions about swiping rise of artificial intelligence in education. Is AI going to kill critical thinking? Or is critical thinking a skill that we need most to make the best of AI? Does our education system produce critical thinkers? Are our students graduate with this important skill? Searching for answers to these and other questions which I had about critical thinking, I came across Dr. Steve Perlman's book, American's Critical Thinking Crisis, The Failure and the Promise of Education. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Perlman as a guest in our podcast. Thank you for accepting to be here, Dr. Perlman. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so excited to speak about all of this. So we will start with first basic question. What is critical thinking and what we as humans need to think critically? Well, critical thinking is actually something that we run into challenge or a lot of people run into challenge when they try to define. And I think if any of your listeners will go out and they'll look on the web or they'll look for definitions of critical thinking, what we're going to find is that we'll have different people's predilections about what critical thinking is. We'll see lots of words like analysis or objectivity or logic and things like that. And that list will go on and on and on. And the problem is that critical thinking is all of those things in a certain respect. But if it's so many things, how are we able to teach anybody how to do it? Because it's too many things. And not only that, we'll have competing definitions of different terms, right? Everyone, if everyone agrees that critical thinking might involve some analysis, can we all agree on what analysis is? I would be relatively certain that virtually all of your listeners have a slightly different definition of what analysis is. And then we actually find some additional problems with critical thinking, which is that let's say we teach people logic. And we say, here's some logical fallacies. So we teach students how to spot a non sequitur or a hasty generalization or things like that. Well, really what we've done, since the brain has a natural inclination to want to be right and want to be right fast, this is scientifically proven, what we've done is given them an easy way for their brain to be critics of other people's ideas and therefore feel more right faster. But we really haven't moved ourselves forward towards solving any kinds of problems or deeper critical thinking. So what I like to say is critical thinking, in one respect, if we want a concept, it is some capacity to transcend our existing paradigm of thought into a better paradigm of thought. That's, in a nutshell, ultimately what we need to be able to do, break out of our existing model of how we understand into something that's a better model. But Again, that will break down in words. So let's think of it a different way because this is the way I really approach critical thinking. Critical thinking, and it's almost never taught this way, 
is really about understanding what our brain does when it thinks, controlling that process so as to become better thinkers. In other words, if we don't understand what's happening in our brain neurologically, what's happening in our brain cognitively, as it tries to think through things, and it does very similar things no matter what it's trying to think through, then of course we're never gonna make people really great critical thinkers. But we can understand that now. We have good sense of what the brain does when it thinks. We know that people can become metacognitively aware of what their own brain does when it thinks. And in becoming metacognitively aware, we know that they can gain greater control over that process. And I think one of the ironies that we're facing now in the world is that people have so much knowledge of how their own body works. We can teach people how to throw a ball or ride a bike or do whatever, but we're not teaching people what their own brains do when they think. And if we think about it, isn't that the foremost thing that we need to be doing in education is creating better thinkers. And that includes, as you mentioned, awareness of how brain works. Right. Um, Right, the processes that go through the brains. And that that also, to me, resonates with the fact that critical thinking is just thinking. It's just using the parts of the brain that think. Cannot pronounce that term, amo. In your book, you describe, what is that, amogala? You, you tell me. Amygdala. Amygdala. How it works. And I know for a lot of audience, probably they're like, what are you talking about? But this is the part of the brain that is responsible for thinking and how it works and what makes that better, what activates it which to me was surprising, if you can maybe touch up on that. Yeah, so the amygdala is a very small part of the brain. It, it's about 0.02% of the brain, and or 3%, and it's, um, but it has a very, very powerful function. The amygdala is controls whether the thoughtful part of our brain, the prefrontal cortexes of our brain are activated, or if the primal survival part of our lower brain is activated. Now the lower brain can't really think very well. It just reacts to things. And and we need that because that helped us survive for a long time. You know, if something jumps out of us out of a bush and tries to kill us, you know, we need to just react. We don't need to sit there and theorize about what we're supposed to do for a long time. Unfortunately, the amygdala has not evolved into modern times and it doesn't understand the difference between stresses or threats that are physical to our survival or intellectual. So unfortunately, for example, a test is something that the amygdala can consider to be a threat, right? And so unfortunately, what it does for students who are feeling stressed for that test, it actually starts to power down the energy that's going into the thoughtful part of our brain. So the mere fact that we're sitting there stressed out about a test actually means that we're going to do less effectively on that test. So it's counterproductive to what its goal is. But the amygdala doesn't understand that. Again, it's a survivalist mechanism and it hasn't really evolved into modern times yet. So they've done a wonderful study, which is really interesting. They had students about to take a test, just take 10 minutes to either sit quietly or write down things that were concerning them about the test and how they could overcome those things. Well, the students who sat quietly did what they did on the test. But the students who took 10 minutes to write down what their concerns were and how they could achieve it did two grade steps better on average than the students who didn't. And the reason is that they, by talking about how they could conquer the test and what their concerns were and sort of venting out those concerns out of the brain, it let the amygdala start to calm down and repower up 
the prefrontal cortexes. But we see this in all kinds of area of education where what we're doing as educators, unfortunately, is actually activating the amygdala to feel stressed out instead of giving it ways to calm down. And so we're actually doing things that are counterproductive to our goal, which is, of course, to get students to think critically in our classes, right? But we don't, we have to understand the neuroscience of what's happening and how to best cultivate that kind of critical thinking among our students. And then brings us to a second question, actually, which we already started to talk about. Does our education system prepare critical thinkers? Because again, like you look at so many job postings, right? Or you look at the courses, we all, they all are looking for critical thinkers. Like this is one of the most popular soft skills. And I think in your book, you give numbers, how many percentages of the job postings ask for that skill. If we look at our course outcomes, they all claim at least that one of the goals is to prepare critical thinkers, but does it really do? And, and why? And I know it's a huge question, but if we can just maybe touch upon it a little bit. Yeah. So the National Association of Colleges and Employers, uh, in their recent survey, 2019, the only skill that was rated as essential by 100% of employers was critical thinking. Okay. But unfortunately, and this is across academia, uh, this is not your university. This is across academia at all colleges and universities. We see very, very low critical thinking outcomes among students uh, to the tune of, well, I think, you know, one of the most recent larger studies found that around 8% of students were fully proficient at critical thinking. And obviously we need to do better than that, right? And we want to do it. And a lot of times we think we're doing it, but when we really test it out, unfortunately, we're not doing it as well as we could be. And I want to make it clear here that there's an important difference between critical thinking and intelligence. This is not a commentary on how intelligent students are. Critical thinking is a skill that needs to be learned. Like we teach students math. We teach students how to read at points in their career. We teach them how to research. We need to teach them how to think through explicit methods on how to think. And that's really what I specialize in doing. So the reason, let me give you one reason, an example that, that doesn't work. The way that, and this is through research, none of this is my opinion. The reason that most teachers aren't fostering the kind of critical thinking they hope for is they teach through what are called immersion methods of critical thinking instruction. Immersion methods of critical thinking are giving students an opportunity to be able to think, a forum where thinking may be present. So something interesting to think about through a class discussion or a reading prompt or a writing prompt or something of that effect. And the idea is that if we give them an interesting idea or we give them an opportunity where thinking can happen, that they're going to do thinking successfully, you know, and they're going to learn to think better. Unfortunately, immersion methods are shown to have virtually no positive effect on critical thinking skills whatsoever. What we need instead are explicit methods of teaching critical thinking, which means actually teaching students what thinking is, how to break it down, how to do it better. And for my purposes, I think if we really want to get to the core of it and help students excel, which I've done at universities, then the goal is to teach them what their brain does when it thinks, be aware of that process so that they can start to control it and maximize it. But that's what we're really not doing in schools enough. We want to get teachers into places where they're doing those practices that are explicit critical thinking instruction, not immersive methods of critical thinking instruction. You also talk about making content meaningful as very important aspect of actually motivating students, right, to think critically. 
would you please explain a little bit more about it? Because I think it it uh, correlates to a lot of our efforts, but do they, these efforts bring results? That would be my question. Yeah. So let's let's make an important distinction here because you used the word meaningful, which is the right word, right? But let's make a very important distinction here. There's all kinds of thinking now in education that we want to keep it interesting. We want to keep it fun. We want to keep it engaging. And those are all good things. Okay. But what we actually find is that there's research that, you know, making a class fun can actually distract students from learning outcomes. Uh, meaningfulness is different than those other things. Students might be engaged in your class, but meaningfulness is, has to come from them. It has to be student emergent such that the student is making connections between different pieces of information or concepts in the class that make meaning for the student that the student finds to be interesting. Now, why is this so important? Because our brains, from a survival perspective, evolved to basically ignore things that aren't meaningful. Why would our brains not evolve to ignore things that aren't meaningful to it? Nothing, if it's not meaningful to my survival, it's not meaningful to my world, my brain puts it to the side. And it's meant to do that, which is why students struggle a lot to get so in really invested in their education at times. And it really has very little to do with the topic. It has much more to do with how we give students an opportunity to engage the topic, such as to construct meaning for themselves. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to just follow their interests the whole way. They might have to learn certain things, but there are different ways to approach that kind of learning. And, and let me give you a very simple example of it. What research actually finds is that students learn more from confusing lectures than clear lectures. I'm going to say that again because it's going to sound so counterintuitive, right? Because what are we always trying to do as educators? Educators are always trying to make their lectures as clear as possible. But here's the problem, right? If you make a lecture so clear that students don't have to think about it, then students don't have to think, right? So what we really want to, and what research supports is that because the brain operates by trying to resolve points of confusion and trying to, it tries to resolve what it doesn't fully understand. That's exactly what gets it thinking. We want lectures or we want lessons that involve a healthy amount of confusion. And, and it's sort of like, you know, it's, you got to find the Goldilocks. You can have too much and turn students off and you can have far too little, which is typically where we are. And, and students might try to learn some stuff, but we're actually shutting their brains off in the process. And you have to find the appropriate amount of confusion. And there are different ways to approach that that we don't need to go into now, right? But, but the point is, let's involve student brains in making meaning between information. And one of the ways to do that is start to not make things so clear that they don't need to think, but make things not clear enough where they have to make the meaningful connections themselves between the things that they are learning in that class. That that is fascinating. It reminds me actually another analogy. Analogy. If you like, if you give me a apple, like chewed apple, I will not need to chew it. I will just swallow it, right? But if you give me the whole apple up in pieces, I will have to figure out how to. I I, I know it's not definitely from the area of education, but like I'm thinking I will have to chew it. I will have to use the whole area of muscles and I like there will be different enzymes involved. There will be completely different outcome for the body too. From me chewing it yes, or from exactly. you just spoon feeding me the, I don't know, apple puree. So that's exactly it. And the, you know, so they've done so many studies on this that reaffirm it. I think one of the most interesting ones is they took a toy and they had some kids and they showed them how they did three ways to, to play with the toy. They showed them what the toy does 
show them all the things that the toy would do, or they kind of show them a little bit about kind of what the toy does or what it might be meant for, or they just handed the kids the toy. Well, the kids who were just handed the toy played with the toy the most compared to all the other kids. Because once you tell the kid what the toy does exactly and what it's used for and, and how to work it, well, of course they're not as interested anymore in it. And that is effectively what we try to do in our teaching. And in doing so, we have the best of intention to help students learn the material. But what we're doing is effectively not making them interested in learning the material because we're just putting it in front of them and shutting their brains off in the process. And we definitely are not helping them to develop that essential skill that we claim we want and everybody wants. Critical thinking. Back, this actually leads very nicely to another discussion. And you probably know where it's going because we don't know. We still haven't decided. I feel like the whole industry is shaking with that discussion of AI. Is it devil or is it what is it? Because there are arguments that it's going to kill any effort. Students can just, you know, once they figure out how to use machine, they're going to produce the work. There's no need. It's like a truth. It's over truth. It's, it's given for them. But the others are saying that, no, now we need to use even more brain. We need to think even more to figure out how to make use of this machine, how to put it to the benefits. So is it a machine that chews apples or is it a machine that can produce, that, that can help us to produce more corpse? What do you think? Crops, sorry, not corpse. Definitely That's not a, corpse. Yeah. Crops. <laughs> Let's hope for more crops, yes, not corpses. Yes, yes, I, I, I know, right? I have to be careful. What do you uh, think? Well, I, I think for anyone to make a final determination about this is a little premature, but, and I talked about this on my own podcast, Hedagogy, but I think what AI has done is, is not really complicate the field so much as reveal something that we all have, that I've been talking about for years, but I think is now becoming apparent. If, if we have ChatGPT or these AI programs, which Noam Chomsky and others called, referred to as a lumbering probability engine, because all they do is effectively determine which words are most likely to follow initial words and so on. So they based on what's being said in the internet. And so they're what they call lumbering probability engines. If those lumbering probability engines are able to produce work, let's say essays that are passing muster at our universities, and they are passing muster at our universities, you know, the problem isn't that AI is existing and able to do that. The problem is that kind of work passes muster at our universities and passes for critical thinking, passes for something thoughtful from students. What we need to do instead is we need to teach students deeper critical thinking skills so that there's no way that a lumbering probability engine is able to replicate the kind of work that a human mind can do when it's thinking on its own and making its own connections and really thinking things through and coming to new solutions that don't exist in the existing world. So as I said, I think that what ChatGPT has exposed the real root of the problem here, which is what we've been accepting as thoughtful work and considering to be thoughtful, critical thinking work in academia in the first place. Uh, and there's plenty of research, again, that, that most of the work that we're accepting doesn't really have critical thinking present in it. But there's, it's so easy to teach students how to do it. And there are no people in the AI world right now, at least, who are arguing that uh, artificial intelligence is close yet to being able to really replicate the full capacity of the human mind might get there eventually. And then, of course, we have different problems on our hands. And I'm not saying that we don't have to take certain measures 
in, you know, in place in our teaching that are more mechanistic in terms of maybe in-class essays and things like that. But I think the real problem is what ChatGP has exposed about what we've been considering to be thoughtful work in the first place. We can teach students to do so much more than ChatGPT can right now. And that should be really be our goal, regardless of whether or not ChatGPT exists in the world. And it's just revealing to us that we haven't gotten there yet. That, that's a great point. And in this line, okay, so ChatGPT just revealed the issues that we already had. So let's talk about what can we do with the existing issues that we have in education system. And I know, again, it's a huge topic on its own, but if you think about uh, people, our educators, faculty members, and you've been faculty member, I'm a faculty member, and there are a lot of faculty members who have great intentions to come to the classroom and do something. What would be your advice to them? What do you think they can do in their classrooms? Yeah, I think, you know, I, to speak about solutions off the cuff or in short order is challenging because a lot of the things that I, I certainly do recommend also depend on how successfully we're implementing them with respect to critical thinking. And implementing them well with respect to critical thinking really depends first and foremost on having a critical thinking assessment that's authentic and driving our education towards that critical thinking assessment. So I can talk about things like active learning or problem-based learning, mastery learning. All of these things are very important to to our success and to developing critical thinkers. But if they're not implemented, and, and often the research suggests that they're not, first of all, with best practice, but second of all, towards a critical thinking assessment at the end that's authentic and meaningful, right? Then we have a problem on our hands. So let me give you an example. One time I was working with a faculty member who said, well, how do I get my students to do more active learning in the classroom? And she said, well, so I'm getting them into group work, you know, and I'm getting them to uh, to do a couple of these other things, you know, that are seem more active. And I, and I said, well, the big misconception about active learning is that if you put students in group, it's active learning. That's not active learning. That's sitting in a group and talking. Active learning is only happening if the brain is actually activated to do more. Active learning can happen if a student's sitting independently and silently at their desk. That can be active learning because active learning is whether or not the thinking process of the brain is really being activated. So if they're having a discussion in class, but they're really not meaningfully engaged, authentically, intellectually engaged in that, then it's not active learning. It just has the appearance of being active learning. Another example would be uh, mastery learning. So mastery learning is so important in so many ways to fostering good critical thinking because remember I talked about the amygdala and the pressure on the amygdala and it will shut off the brain when it feels stressed. Well, if we put students into any high stakes test situation or high stakes learning situation where it's, it's a one and done, then the amygdala is stressed, we're turning the brain down. It's contrary to what we want to achieve. If we give students multiple opportunities to achieve what would be, I think, should be a very high standard, even a higher standard than most achieve now, but we give them the time to achieve it and control over that process because some control is what the amygdala wants, okay? Control is the key thing that the amygdala wants, some sense of control. Then we can teach them, then we can really activate their brains because we alleviate the stress response, right? That's not to say students shouldn't ever be in high, high stress, high stakes situations because we are in life sometimes in high stakes, high stress situations. But it's to say that broadly speaking, we want to reconstruct 
how we're thinking about successful learning in ways that are cognitively sound and, and neuroscientifically sound for the mind. And, and it's much easier to do that than we think if we're just willing to alleviate and rethink a little bit of the construct. So when I say that, and when I say, look, we want to move students to a mastery construct, I say, what things do students really need to master in your course in order to excel if we can get them to do it at a very high level and with real critical thinking involved, what would you sacrifice anything to get them to that other place? And a lot of times educators are saying, well, I need to teach them all of this content. You know, all hundred points of content need to be taught in my course. And I say, well, how come? I say, well, that's what I need to cover. They need to learn all of these things. And I say, okay, but let's say they do, all right? Let's say you get a student who goes through your course, they attend every class, they do all the reading, they earn a C in your course. And they've learned all the information at a C level, even at a B level. What percentage of information from your class do they remember a year later? Now, the statistics on this are abhorrent, right? We don't. It depends upon the study a little bit, right? But they could forget as much as about ninety percent of that a year later. No one's retaining great percentages of it, except maybe some of the elite A students. But they've passed the class. Well, what if instead you could get them to learn? 75% of what you're, you're teaching, but they could not only learn it deeply and think more critically through it, but retain it better, right, a year later. Isn't that really a cumulative win? It is, right? Because they're retaining more, they learn it more deeply, they're thinking about it more deeply. So we have to move away from just thinking that critical, that education is about the content, but also about the retention, the depth of the learning, and the understanding that happens through real critical thinking, right? So a year later, they'll know more even if we teach them a little bit less sometimes. And again, it varies by class what we need to do, what our course objectives are, what our departmental objectives are, what field we're in. You know, I don't want a nurse who doesn't know where my femur is. There's certainly some things that we really need all students to know, right? So that's fine. It's contextual to the class, but it's a premise that we're talking about. All these things, these different kinds of learning strategies, problem-based learning, uh, mastery learning, active learning, I'd name a bunch of others, of course, at the same time, but they really depend on how we implement them, how we really understand them, and do we have an authentic critical thinking assessment? That's the goal. Without a critical thinking assessment, that's the goal. It really doesn't matter if what we're doing, if we wanted them to learn critical thinking, they won't get it. Students will learn towards the assessment. So it's not only about what we do, but it's the whole picture together, assignments and assessments that will make it work, correct? Yeah, and assessments foremost, because most research shows that students learn toward the assessment, not towards the lesson. It's not what we're teaching, it's what's going to be assessed. And any student who doesn't ask, is this going to be on the test, is effectively not being a good survivalist. I mean, they might have an endemic interest in the subject matter, which is great, but so many of them don't necessarily have that driving intrinsic interest in the subject matter. Well, then any brain that's not asking, is this going to be on the test, isn't really functioning as a survivalist brain. Because of course I'd want to know, is this going to be on the test? And because again, our brains are designed to filter out that stuff that's not immediately important. That's how we survive because otherwise it could, wouldn't know what to focus on and learn. So that's really an important question. But if we can make the assessment meaningful and drive them towards meaningful assessment, that's also representative of the depth and complexity and richness of our subject matter that we want them to learn, not sacrificing any of that, but rather building on it, then we can accomplish more. In fact, and here's what we know, critical thinking elevates learning outcomes in terms of how much they learn, how deeply they learn, and how long they retain that information. It increases the portability of it. But here's something else that it does that I think educators need to be more aware of. When we get students really engaged and thinking critically and making meaning about their subject matter, they do more work. 
All the research shows they spend more time working on the class. They get more invested in the class. They do more reading that might not even be assigned for the class. Why? Because if we're in, if our brains are interested in something, they'll pursue it. That's also what our brains are designed to do. So that's where we want to get our educational system. That's where we want to build our courses so that we're not trying to coerce students into doing things, but rather that we're getting them so invested intellectually that we almost can't stop them from doing more towards our subject matter. And that's that's really my goal. Basically, increasing their in, uh, intrinsic motivation to do that, right? Once we once we capture that, just to summarize from what I hear, we all will benefit as educators if we understand better how brain is working, and if everything that we do, we build towards making brain work in in the way. And again, as I said, like critical thinking is thinking in terms of activating those parts of the brain that are responsible for thinking and being mindful in our assessments or assignments or whatever we do, how what we're doing in the classrooms are building towards it, how what impact they have on our brain. Because there is so much we can coerce by rules and regulations or, I don't know, grades. Yeah, our through no fault of any modern educator, and I've worked with thousands of educators, and I've ran into very few who I wouldn't say are dedicated to their craft and really have their students' best interest at heart and so on and so forth. And, and we're underappreciated in our society and, and certainly underpaid, right? But, you know, our educational system is predicated on things that we didn't understand about neuroscience and couldn't have 200 years ago. And we're working with the same model from 200 years ago or 300 years ago, which doesn't really make sense in modern times. And it doesn't make sense because, A, we know, we know now a lot more neurologically about what's happening and cognitively what's happening in the brain and how people learn from a neuroscientific perspective. And we should overlay our educational system on top of that. Right, rather than trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, which is really kind of from an intellect, from a neuroscientific perspective, what we're doing. But something else is also important. Our whole society has changed. It used to be that knowledge was a more valuable commodity than it is now, because knowledge was so much more limited and inaccessible than it is now. When I started teaching, when I started studying composition theories, composition is just my first background in education, it was pretty much possible for me to read everything that came out in composition theory and keep up with it just when I was entering the profession. There were a limited number of journals that were happening, a limited number of conferences. There is no way anyone in any field right, in any discipline now in academia can keep up on everything that's published in their field, nor can students. And and any broad spectrum information is something we can all look up through Google instantaneously. And now with ChatGPT, it can even sort some of that for us better. What we can't, what is valuable now is not knowledge the way it was even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. What's valuable now is the ability to think, to solve problems, to innovate, to anticipate the future and create it and be agile in those intellectual respects. All the all the companies calling for soft skills, all the companies clamoring for, for problem solvers and so on and so forth. Why? Everyone can have access to the knowledge now. There's too much knowledge for any one person to understand, but the person who can think better is going to be the person who is going to be most successful because thinking is the one thing that Google can't do for us anymore. So our world has shifted from a knowledge-based society now to innovation-based society. And our educational system has to start to reflect that better. That's a great point. And again, those soft skills is something that where we as humans can compete with technology, I guess, still, right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's, it, it can't replace us. Yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. 
yet. We'll see what happens down the road. My last questions will be to be for you will be about writing. And again, I am social scientist, and in social sciences, writing is one of the most important not only skills, but mediums for communication. This is how students and, fa- students and faculty, they communicate with each other. This is how students express themselves. And in your book, you place a very special importance to writing as a tool that can help, right, develop critical thinking. So just to wrap up, I wanted to touch upon this writing and what it means for critical thinking and why it's so important for critical thinking. Writing so important for critical thinking because... It forces our brain to do a couple of things that are crucial to it. First of all, it forces our brains to put words into language, into very specific language. And until words, until our thoughts are sort of congealed into language, they're not really complete thoughts because we think linguistically. We feel emotively, but we really think linguistically. And so that's one thing. Second, it enables us to have to communicate that thought to somebody else. And that requires an anticipation of context and understanding of audience and someone else who can reflect back to us the imprecision of our thoughts and the imprecision of our language relative to our thoughts. Third, it really lets us view our own thoughts and view them more objectively because we can go back not only and look at our writing as we write it, but we can also go back to our writing a week later when we're a little bit more objective and detached from it and see what it is that we thought we were saying as opposed to what we actually put on the page. I mean, think so many of us will look at our writing, anyone who's done a lot of writing will look at it, they'll say, how do I say this? You know, we write a sentence, we go, that's not really what I was meaning to say because there's a permanence to that language, to that writing, and a congealing of thought that becomes visual to us. It becomes material. It becomes physical. And that's the only time that those things really become physical and material as our thoughts is when we write them out. And so that's why writing is so important because it lets us examine each other's thoughts and repeatedly go back and reread them and re-examine them and lets us do the same thing for our thoughts. So, and I don't just mean writing the research paper. I don't just mean writing a long essay, informal writing, emailing, all of these things are critical to developing good thought as well. I think writing is really, and there's a lot of research that supports writing, is really being our most important tool for developing critical thinking, if for no other reason than it's the easiest way to assess it, because it makes it makes a thought material. If it's used correctly, right, still keeping in mind if that it serves the purpose of activating those parts in brain that will will make us think, will make us think. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, we know that the vast majority of writing assignments don't do that, and even in higher education, that even when we tell students to write an argument, we're still not necessarily really activating the brain in the process. There are ways to do it. It's really not that hard to, to do that. Uh, and, and one thing that's so critical towards it is also just making sure that we are assessing the writing based on authentic critical thinking more, if not exclusively though I think it should be close to grammar and other things should count a little bit, you know, at least majoritively. And uh, what we know instead is that so many educators are placing so much emphasis on the content, whether it's thoughtful or not, right? Not really whether it's critical thinking, but just on, on a relaying of content, which is what chat GPT can do very well, uh, or on grammatical correctness, which is easy to grade because it's objective or on essay structure or on things like that. Educators become frustrated with the writing they receive from students. So what do they do? A lot of them, they make their assignments a lot more explicit. 
They make their assignments, uh, have many more very explicit steps. Make sure you do this, then make sure you do that, then make sure you do another thing. Well, all of the, what's all that doing? It's reducing the amount of thinking that the student has to do in order to fulfill the assignment. When really we want to do the opposite. If we give students a critical thinking standard for their writing, we say, this is how you're going to be assessed. This is what critical thinking is. And we show it to them. We work with them on understanding the assessment. There's almost no assignment. The assignments really, again, need to be, we need to put less emphasis on the assignment, more emphasis on understanding the critical thinking assessment. And then we say to them, well, you were, you know, obviously we're in Shakespeare class here. So you got to write about the Shakespeare plays that we read. And maybe we're going to constrain that assignment in certain ways a little bit. But for the most part, then it's just go, go, go think about that and write well, as opposed to trying to walk them through these multifaceted, multi-step assignments that produce a material outcome that looks okay on paper, but doesn't have the intellectual richness that we really wanted to have. And that's something that in the former case of all those steps and so forth, something that ChatGBT could construct, you know, faster than the student could anyway. So again, being very mindful about how these writing assignments are created and how they are assessed. That the biggest, I guess, my biggest intake, and this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like we're giving our listeners so so much food for thought. But if I can bring one idea, what the biggest intake is for us educators, whatever we do, remember how brain works. Remember what we're trying to do. And whatever we do in the classroom, whether it's online classroom on campus or it's in person, be mindful about how we build our assignments and how we assess them. Mindful of whether they do indeed create, not create, I should say, activate those critical thinking components in our brain. Would it be accurate to say? Yeah, I think that's very accurate to say. And I think what's so important for educators to hear is that, again, our, 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 our academic construct is outdated. And so whatever we're doing within it isn't really tapping neuroscience and the brain the way not only that we could, but we want to and that students would enjoy better. And it takes a little bit of a paradigm shift. But the truth of the matter is that once we're able to make the shift, teaching is easier than it is now. Teaching is more rewarding than it is now. Learning for the students is easier and more rewarding than it is now. I mean, challenging in certain intellectual ways, but right, easier in terms of their brains really getting involved in what we're doing. So the goal here is to realize that we're in a, we're in a poor construct systemically, but we can shift it. And if we shift it, it's actually easier because it's easier to teach a brain the way the brain wants to learn than the way we're doing it now, which again is in many ways trying to fit that square peg into a round hole. And it just doesn't really work. It's not, it's not the fault of any educator listening to this because we didn't know the neuroscience around this before this, and we're still learning it. But now we have the opportunity to make the shift that will make everyone happier and as well as, you know, student, as students go out into the job market, make them more employable and more successful, especially in a world where, you know, there's global job market now. There's global job competition. And we have other countries, unfortunately, outside the United States who are making the shift to more modern forms of education much more quickly than the U.S. is. And so we want to make sure that our U.S. students also are competitive on the world stage. And are prepared. And there is a way to have this win-win situation. So let's let's finish on that positive note. Yes. And on an individual level, uh, may I mention that at the Critical Thinking Institute, the ctinstitute.com, we have online programs about critical thinking for kids, for, for adults, and so on and so forth. So I hope you'll check it out and come on. 
see you there as, and what we have to offer. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Perlman, for being with us. It was really very interesting conversation. This is Lamantash, your host for this episode of Agents of Change. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.